The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for this privilege to gather together as a church family to hear your word. And I ask now, Lord, that you just be with Stacy as he delivers your message. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So allow me a few preliminaries. So good point uh, in the book to note where we are. You know, we've talked about this and we've reemphasized it, but it's important because we're at the place in the Gospel of John as we're making our way through it where he makes a transition. We're at that halfway point. The first part of John we've referred to as the public ministry of Jesus. Roughly three years where it covers what he does and what he says, all of that stuff leading up to this point. The, by the time you get to the second half, you go from the, the public ministry of Jesus to what we're calling the passion ministry of Jesus, the suffering ministry of Jesus. And the book slows way down there, covers way less of a time period. And so we're just beginning this second half, the suffering or the passion ministry of Jesus. And I'm, as the way I'm organizing it is to do it in these kind of seven big events um, throughout the second half. And the first of which is the triumphal entry. That's what Joe, uh, the passage Joe read for us. Is to cover it all, it's going to take us through the month of January. Um, so this is the first of that. The next thing to point out is when we think about the setting, because it's been a while since we've been in the book, is that uh, on the surface of it, and this part's in your handout, on the surface of it, it looks like Jesus is just would be going to Jerusalem just like anybody else. Somebody making the pilgrimage there for the celebration, for the feast, for you know, what we often call a holiday. But it's not exactly like that. If the, the setting is such, everybody knows the leaders want to kill Jesus. That they're, they're already set on that. But recently, as he's making his way in, chapter 11, Lazarus has recently been raised. And because of that, there's this great buzz about who Jesus is. Everybody's talking about him. He's a, he's a public figure. He's a public personality. And there's great buzz, you could say, because that's a great sign. What's that mean? What's it signify that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead? I told you that the second half of the book slows way down. If the first half is his public ministry, you know, three-ish years of ministry, the second half is the final week of Jesus' life. And it, it coincides um, with, the, uh, with the Passover celebration. And John, 
points that out. Chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover. He, he thinks this is significant. He wants us to know. And then the, the other thing that I would say is, you know, whenever you're going through the gospel, uh, uh, any of the gospel writers of the four, what you tend to get into the details of what it is Jesus said, what he did, and whatever, everything that's going on around him. And amid all of those details, and it's important to do that, what we should never lose focus of once we've gotten the big picture is why he came in the first place. Why is it that Jesus is here? You know, we think about that over the Christmas uh, season, Advent, the coming of the Lord, right? This, this one who came for us. In the, in the backdrop of everybody's mind would have been, this would be a way to frame the issue. In Psalm 130, verse 3, it says this, If you were to mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you were to track everything that I've done, and to confront me with those, if I, were to, if I were to be in your presence, in your holiness, and all of that, and you were to bring up everything that I've done, all my sin, all my flaw, could I stand before you? Would I be accepted by you? Well, the obvious answer is no. Right? No one, no chance if he were to attract, not me, not you. Jesus came to remedy that heartbreaking answer. That's why he came. So in he comes to the world, and in he goes to Jerusalem during the week of Passover. So they call this, like I said, the triumphal entry. Um, notably, the way he comes in to the city is not the approach of somebody who's trying to be king, somebody who already is, and he's letting people know that. So let's, let's take a look at the passage in earnest. The first part of uh, the passage, let's just call it the event. He's describing the triumphal entry of Jesus. It's the first four verses, verses 12 through 15. And if you notice, like the first line there, it says, I better get to the passage myself, says the next day. All right, he's tracking with the very beginning of um, the, the chapter. Chapter 12, verse 1, six days before Passover. And then by the time you get to this passage, he's saying it's the next day, still the week of of Passover, and everybody's gathering, and he says, this crowd had come to the feast. Now, it's not like a crowd that uh, wants to go see a show or something like that. The, the feast, you're talking about a week, it all congregates in one city, Jerusalem. And once a year, they would do this, and keep in mind, it's such a big deal um, because the city would hold a certain number of people, but the, the, the cities back then weren't like modern cities. You know, where you had all these hotels and running water and power and that sort of thing. So Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, at one point remarked that there was a, a Passover week that over two and a half, over, over 2.7 million people observed it. Not counting those who were defiled so they couldn't participate or those who were foreigners, right? They, they weren't Jewish or they didn't meet the standards to participate. So you're approaching 3 million people in an ancient city. So what, what did they do? Well, they beef up security, you know, to make sure that there's no civil unrest and all of that. But people made the pilgrimage um, to journey to Jerusalem to go up, you know, the, the, the city itself is on a, a mountain. And so to go up to Jerusalem to make this uh, observance. So it was a holiday, you'd say. Well, what did it signify? What is it that they were celebrating? Well, they were celebrating Exodus the deliverance from Egypt, in which case, they, you, know, you remember, they sacrificed the lamb for Passover so that the angel of the Lord would, would pass over 
them and that they wouldn't see death. And so they're, they're remembering that the Lord spared them through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Um, and then when John does that, right, so we're Passover week, um, everybody's there to celebrate that, it's going to be bustling, he starts to describe the crowd, verses 12 and 13. And he tells us, first of all, it's a large crowd. Um, you know, that's obvious enough. But then he tells us three things. He tells us uh, what they hear, what they do, and what they say. And in verse 12, he tells us what they hear. What is it that they heard? Well, they heard Jesus was coming, right? And so that's, as, again, there's so much buzz generated about Jesus that they, they hear this, and you've got all of this that since he's coming to the feast with all of that power, he then transitions to tell us what they do, what the, what the crowd does. At the beginning of verse 13, it says, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, other gospel accounts tell us more and they emphasize maybe some different things. John's very efficient. This is all he tells us. And so it makes you want to go, okay, well, what's the significance in particular of the palm branches? Why would you go out and meet him, you know, as Jesus is coming into the city and whenever you read all the gospel accounts, there are people uh, surrounding, there are people already in the city, there are people uh, traveling behind and all of that. What's the significance, though, of the palm branches? Well, it was a symbol of victory, generally speaking, militarily, a symbol of victory. By the time of this event, it had already become a national symbol. So, for example, a guy named Simon the Maccabee, uh, whenever he was received by the people, they, they greeted him with palm branches, military victory, because he had driven out the Syrians before that. So they're saying something whenever they go get the palm branches and they go to meet him. It's an indication that they're ready to receive Jesus in all of his power. His power, right, right, the Lazarus power, the sign power, the healing people, um, you know, somebody born blind so that they could see and so on. And this is corroborated by what they say. They say, um, into verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, what does Hosanna mean? It's not just a church word. You know, it's not like it was just made up. It meant something. And what it means is this. It's connected to, to the whole thing. It means give salvation now. Now, you, because you look back, you tend to think of salvation as salvation from sin. Now, they're going to think of salvation as a really broad word or deliverance as a really broad word, like military salvation or military deliverance, Right? They're under the tyranny of Rome. And so they say, we want salvation. We want deliverance now. And they quote from Psalm 118, which is generally speaking a blessing, a blessing on the pilgrim who's making the journey as they're approaching. They're walking up to the city of Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're a pilgrim coming and you're seeking out the Lord and you're remembering Passover as you approach the city. Blessed is somebody. You're blessed if you're somebody who does that. In God's name, but they add something. It's not in Psalm 118. Did you notice? They don't just say, Hosanna, like give deliverance now. We want salvation now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They add this little phrase at the end, even the king of Israel. They're saying something with the way they receive him. They're ready to receive him as their king. Deliver us now, bless you, we want salvation now, you're the king of Israel. And so what does Jesus do? 
In verse 14, you'd, you would expect, I mean, we, we tend to think in the modern world, modern to postmodern world, very, you know, therapeutically oriented, sorry, but um, how, we, how we think about how we're introspective and we process all these things. What do we do? The way John describes the account is he just says this, beginning in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. That's all he says. Meaning he rides into town on a young donkey. Now, then John immediately provides a context for that. He cites Zechariah. He points out at the end of verse 14, why did he do that? Well, because it was written. And then he cites this prophet some 500 years before Jesus, Zechariah, that Jesus is doing something significant. He's telling them something. As he's riding in on this little donkey, remember 500 plus years Zechariah said something would happen, right? A king would come, and he would come a certain way. And Jesus is saying, hmm, I'm that king. All right. As John lays it out, this, the, the, the event itself, the triumphal entry, very efficient. He, he moves from there to, to give us three perspectives on it. And, it'll, and we'll start with the disciples. That's verse 16. And he, and he says it very simply. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What does it mean when Jesus was glorified? Because there's a before and after. At the time, not so good. After, once he was glorified, then good. What does it mean that Jesus was glorified? He's talking about after his resurrection. It's the a glorification means that it was veiled and then it was shown. Okay, these the greatness of Jesus people didn't see before he he uh, was crucified, buried, and raised. What did people see in Jesus? Generally speaking, they just saw another man, like a teacher, you know, a philosopher, something like that, a prophet maybe, but they didn't see who he really was. And once he was raised. He's glorified. The Father, by raising him, vindicated, yes, this is my son. This is truth. He's the way. Jesus is life. Okay? So it says at first, the disciples didn't understand. They're like clueless. And this is a theme, particularly in John, you know, it shows up, but it's a theme in all the Gospels where Jesus will teach something, he'll say something, and the disciples don't get it. And says only after he was glorified, only after he'd gone through the whole thing where he was, you know, he's put on trial and he was crucified and buried, and only after he was raised did the disciples follow it. Did they get it? Did the light come on? Now, I, I wonder when I think, like, why is it that the disciples who followed him around all the time, they heard Jesus teach every day, they saw him, they had behind-the-scenes access passes, they could ask him any question, whenever. Why is it that they didn't get this? Only, in, only after did they go, oh yeah, prophets like Zechariah said this, and Jesus did this, and so on. Why is it that it took so long for the light to turn on? And why is it that, that John decided to put their perspective in? Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm guessing, okay? So if you go, uh, it's wrong to guess from the pulpit. No, it's not. I'm telling you, it's wrong to guess from the pulpit and not tell people you're guessing from the pulpit. So I'm guessing from the pulpit, okay? Um, but I've got a couple of ideas that I think are good ideas. Why is it that John, as he's describing all these events, sort of inserts 
the disciples' perspective on this. You know, to let you know, Jesus is really going it alone here. Well, I think one might be is that we tend to heroize people, right? What do we do? We tend to be people who go, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's Jesus, but then, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, right? We tend to pick our heroes and elevate them. And if you read the Gospels, there's really Jesus and the rest of us. Okay, there's one hero and everybody else, you, me, everybody in the room is somebody who's always in need of grace. That's who we are. There's Christ who brings us to God and there's the rest of us who need to be brought to God. I think the other is whenever you look at it, you'd go, why does he include these people in? Well, the crowd doesn't get it. And the Pharisees, they obviously don't get it. So the disciples... Nope, they don't get it either. They followed him around every day. They heard everything he said. They saw everything he did, and they still didn't get it. And John reinforces this point elsewhere. Who gets it? Well, truth comes to you by grace. You don't get the truth because you're a spiritual superstar, or you're really smart, or you're just a good person. You get it because God in his kindness and grace to you turns the light on. Is that good? Uh, anyway, the disciples essentially experience the entire ministry of Jesus in a fog. It doesn't lift until after Jesus' work is completely done. So that's the first perspective, the perspective of the disciples. And the second is the crowd, verses 17 and 18. It's a little bit confusing because there are two crowds, actually. There's the verse 17 crowd and the verse 18 crowd. The verse 17 crowd is the Lazarus crowd. Let's read that again. It says, the crowd that had been with him when, Laz, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, right? That's the Lazarus crowd. What do they do? It says, they continued to bear witness. They're talking about it. They saw Jesus, chapter 11, raise Lazarus from the dead, you know, speak, Lazarus come forth, Lazarus is raised from the dead, and they keep talking about it. Pretty credible witnesses. There's a lot of them, they're right there, and they have great facts. Like, for example, a lot of people had seen Lazarus dead and buried, and now he's walking around. And then in verse 18, that's the Passover crowd. And um, it says, uh, they're, they're the crowd who met him, verse 18. And what John is pointing out is why. What, what was it, why was there such a big crowd generated around Jesus to receive him? Well, it's because the Lazarus crowd inspired them. Right? Listen, we saw this thing that Jesus did to address Lazarus in the tomb. He raised him from the dead. And so they go out to meet him. They're inspired by that. Now, little aside here, this is not as... as uh, a lot of people point to this as a prophecy. They'll look at the Zechariah prophecy. And they'll say, hey, listen, Jesus fulfilled this. And what skeptics will say is, well, how hard is that? He just read that you ride in on a donkey and he could fulfill that just by on purpose getting on a little donkey and riding into Jerusalem at the time. And that's true. Jesus did what he did on purpose. He's saying something whenever he gets on the donkey. But that doesn't explain the crowd. How does the crowd gather around? Like Jesus can on purpose get on a donkey, but he can't necessarily assemble a huge crowd who's ready to receive him before he even gets there. Why is that? John is explaining this. This isn't like a political rally, some, you know, press stunt. This is the greatest crowd you've ever seen. It's not like that. Um, they're great expectations. Jesus is not just 
a good talker or a good fighter. Jesus is the one with Lazarus raising power. And says there, you know, the technical word is like nutso. They're declaring Jesus to be king. He's entering into the city and they're calling him king, um, declaring him to be that. And the people are excited. How does Jesus answer? Jesus answers that expectation. They've got palm branches, a symbol of victory. Uh, Come, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus comes in saying, I'm Zechariah 9.9. He rides that donkey into town. You think I'm a king? Yeah. Think I'm a king? Yes. But there's a but. The final perspective, you see the, the perspective of the disciples and the crowd, and then finally the Pharisees in verse 19. And about them, John writes, So the Pharisees said to one another, that word can uh, imply arguing with each other, they did that a lot. Pharisees weren't on the same page a lot. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So what they're doing is the Pharisees are there watching the whole thing, and uh, you know it's not good. Their side is losing, it looks like. So they start arguing amongst themselves. They're exasperated. They'd had plans to kill Jesus. You can see that in chapter 11, verse 53. But it goes back at least to chapter 5. They don't like Jesus. They want to get rid of Jesus. So they're plotting to kill him. So they got plans. But they think to themselves, listen, we've got to do this quietly because the crowds could turn against us. They're ostensibly the leaders. And so they're thinking, if we put him away quietly, we'll still have our influence. We won't have any problems with unrest from Rome or any of that. And yet here Jesus comes in and they see all this momentum gathering about around Jesus as he enters the city with people declaring him to be king. And they say, we're not getting anywhere. And so they speak in hyperbole, right? The world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. Um... I don't know if you'll remember this, but a while back, we talked in the Gospel of John about how Caiaphas, he's a bad guy, he's a high priest, um, and he speaks better than he knows. One would die for the nation. That Caiaphas means one thing, God means something else. And here, the Pharisees speak better than they know, just like Caiaphas did. Even those outside the Jewish uh, uh, ethnic group of people um, are coming to Jesus. So if you pop down to the next verse, it says there were some Greeks on hand. And they're there. In the next verse, it says, hey, we want to see Jesus. And then if you pop down to verse 32, Jesus is talking and he says, if I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw everybody to me. Meaning not just Jewish people. They speak better than they know. The, all that to say is from the perspective of the Pharisees, they're trying to get rid of Jesus, but he's only rising. Play on words intended. Right? And they're thinking to themselves, man, I, you know, if we could only do this. And why has John put it this way? John's putting it this way to let you know Jesus is conquering the world. The whole world is going after him. Just not how people assume conquering is done. So there you have it. A very uh, simple uh, account of Jesus entering into the city, his triumphal entry on a donkey and people receiving him as king. But we haven't really talked about why. Why is it that Jesus does this? Why does he go at this time of year, uh, go into the city the way he does? What's the significance of the triumphal entry? 
Well, let me give you four answers to that question. And the first is this. It's to fulfill Scripture. Zechariah 9, 9, he cites it. God, God had said all along what he would do. You could go back 500 years to Zechariah. There's one sent by God who's coming, a king, one who would be pierced for your transgressions. Isaiah, 700 years. The ministry of Moses before that. Uh, the life of Abraham. There's one coming, and God had pointed that out, and God had stated it in the Old Testament. God describes the one he's sending through the prophets, and Jesus is living out those so that people can see, even if they don't at the time. Jesus is doing this to say that he's God's sent one. God had spoken in Scripture, and this is who he is to fulfill Scripture. The second is that he came to Jerusalem to die. Um, Jerusalem's a danger zone. If you you can kind of see how this is framed whenever he, in the Lazarus uh, event, whenever Jesus goes there, Bethany's adjacent to Jerusalem, and when uh, Jesus goes there, everybody knows it's a danger zone. Uh, danger zone. So he's going to um, Lazarus' hometown, and the disciples object. They say in verse 8, listen, it wasn't that long ago that you went there and everybody was strong, or the Jewish leaders were trying to stone you. Why would we go back? And, you know, Jesus addresses them, and whenever he, you know, they're finally going to go, uh, Thomas, in, uh, in verse 16, says, okay, guys, let's go so that we can die with them. They know that Jerusalem is a danger zone. They know that that's where it's hot. And the leaders want to kill Jesus. They've been planning this. It's not a secret. You know, it's hard to hide whenever you're trying to stone somebody. Jesus knows this, and he wants his disciples to know this. And so he tells them, this is in another gospel, Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. Mark describes this. It says, as, as, and they were going up to the, or they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. Right? You get this, uh, this, this scene in your mind of Jesus going to his death, and he's leading the pack. Um, his disciples are afraid. They can't believe. They're amazed. They can't believe he's going to do this. Does, is he naive? Does he not know that it's bad there? Does he not know that to go into the city is certain death? And, and Jesus sees their confusion. And what he does is it says he takes them aside and he begins to tell them what was to happen to, them, to him. And this is, this is what he describes. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He's going there to die. The third thing is he's going to Jerusalem to be our Passover. Remember at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, for sure, uh, John is letting us know. Do you get to the timing? This is Passover. This is why there's buzz around the city. This is what's going on with all of that. And so the people are coming as pilgrims for the feast. Now, there are lots of lambs at this time. We know from some ancient records, if we were just to estimate, that maybe over 200,000 lambs would be slaughtered. Over 250,000 lambs would be slaughtered. And Jesus is entering into the city where Passover lambs are slaughtered. And it's not a coincidence. When those lambs are being sacrificed, at the same time, the one that John the Baptist referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he'll be sacrificed. 
And Paul, at one point, will reflect on Jesus' role, referring to him as our Passover. Because Jesus is entering the city to die and be our Passover. And finally, and sometimes this gets missed, and so maybe it's a little too on the nose or something, he's coming into the city to announce himself as the true king. That's why John cites uh, Zechariah 9.9. Look at Zechariah, or Zechariah 9.9. Look at uh, uh, how he quotes it in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming on a donkey. The king is coming. I mean, they shouldn't miss this. The crowd wants a certain kind of king, and they're ready to receive Jesus as that kind of king. Hosanna, give deliverance now. You're the king. Just do that. And Jesus agrees with them that he's a king. He's just letting them know that he's a different kind of king. He's saying something whenever he comes in the way he does to Jerusalem. When he comes in that Zechariah 9-9 way, on a little donkey, not a war horse, not somebody who's vanquishing, uh, you know, his enemies at the moment. He said, what's he saying? Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm a king. As a matter of fact, I am the king, the Messiah king promised this whole time i'm the king zachariah told you about so i'm going to do what that king does i'm going to ride into jerusalem on a donkey not a war horse we'll have cut off all of the the war things the war horse the um you know the the weapons and that and the chariots and all of that all of that's going to be cut off i'm not going to speak war to the nations i'm going to speak peace to the nations the whole world and I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to do it by blood, but it's not going to be the blood of battle. It's going to be the blood of sacrifice because of the covenant God has made with you. Jesus is saying something. I'm the king, but I'm not the king that you expect. I'm going to do what God had promised all along. You want God's king? Then look at what God has said. Let's go back to Psalm 130. Remember, we raised the issue that would have been in everybody's mind back then. All of those folks would know it. We should know it too. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who, should say, who could stand? If God were to track everything that you had done, take an inventory of your conduct and your attitudes and all of that, could you be in his presence? Could you be accepted by a holy God? And if you're honest, you'd have to go, well, no. Not, even if I got a do-over. Even if I got a do-over to my do-over to my do-over. I couldn't do that. If he, if he tracked everything that I did... I couldn't stand. If I'm going to get in, it's going to have to be extrinsic, right? It's going to have to come from the outside. Interesting, if you read that same psalm, it says, you know, the psalmist reflects on this. If we're in your presence and you track all of our evil, all of our sin, who can stand before you? And then in the very next verse, verse 4, it says, but with you there is forgiveness. And you have to say, well, if God is just, how is that even possible? Inner Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding a little donkey. He did it on purpose. Uh, there's, a, there's a verse or two in Colossians that I want to track because it tracks with this issue. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. If God were just keeping a record of wrongs, a record of debt, um, how in the world could that ever be addressed? Well, it's Jesus. So Paul, writing in Colossians, reflects on it this way. He says, and you can keep in mind, these are people, he's writing to people who have believed in Jesus. 
It says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, forgiving, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did God go from, like, how would he not track everything? Well, he took that, the record of debt that you had, and he nailed it to the cross of Jesus. With you, Lord, there is forgiveness. That's why the Gospel of John calls everybody to believe in Jesus. Because he's the way you receive God's king. He's how you come into the family of God. He's how you become a child of God. It's through who Jesus is and what he's done. And John says... Believe in Him. There's life in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we see the king coming into a city absolutely misunderstood uh, by everyone. The, the, the disciples in a fog, the Pharisees opposing Him, and the crowds wanting something that He was not. Help us to see Jesus as He is and to believe and uh, as children of God, saved by grace, our sins nailed to his cross, to know your forgiveness and live that light out in a dark world that desperately needs him for your glory and for our neighbor's good. Give us strength um, and give us joy in the gospel. You're a good God. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.